Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll jump into the Word. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity to be here this morning, so thankful for uh, the chance to be in your Word, to be encouraged by uh, your worship, and giving you praise and honor that you deserve, Lord. We pray that, um, yeah, Lord, we just welcome your Holy Spirit here, that you would be in our midst and speaking through this message. God, may these be your words and not mine. Um, we just proclaim your gospel this morning and receive it. We repent of all that we've done and continue to place our belief and faith in you, Jesus. Uh, Lord, be with us in this message that, that as we look at these words, you would encourage and strengthen our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we're in Mark 6, 1 to 30, and this may come as a surprise to you, but Mark 6 has a sandwich in it. Because Mark loves sandwiches, and now this whole congregation loves sandwiches too. Everyone's innocent. We got a sandwich at the table there, and so I got a really important question for you. This is a very important question. Is that a sandwich? Is it a sandwich? Raise your hands if you think this is a sandwich. Got a sandwich? I got a sandwich in there. Paul says, "Yeah, it's a sandwich." Okay. Anybody else say that is a sandwich? Root. Rosen for sandwich. Okay, we got two votes for hot dog is a sandwich. Okay, how about those who say hot dogs are not sandwiches? Raise your hand. All right, okay, yeah, so I mean, it makes sense. Uh, so Merriam-Webster actually defines a sandwich as two pieces of bread or a connected bun with filling inside. Yes, right, right, that's just... I'm, I, okay, I got to confess, I'm in the, I know, I know Paul's feeling good, and Ruth, you're feeling good about this. I totally disagree with you. This is a hot dog. This is, it's not a sandwich, nor is it, uh, nor is it a burger. You know, this is, this is a hot dog. This is what this is, okay? I don't know what to do with a Philly cheesesteak. Uh, it's tough, too, because that's kind of a connected bun. Is that a hot dog? Oh, okay. Man, sandwiches are difficult. Um, <laughs> This sandwich is a little bit difficult, too, because I was joking on Thursday at Community Group about this passage that uh, it's, it's practically like this sandwich is like an open face sandwich because the, the one side of the bread is like one verse, okay? So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mark uses sandwiches in Scripture to illustrate his points. And so basically what he'll do is he'll start a narrative, so he'll be walking through a narrative, and then he'll pause that narrative and talk about something else that is related but different, okay? And then he'll come back to and complete the narrative. In this case, we've got uh, verses uh, 1 to 13 are the first piece of bread. And then verses 14 to 29 are the meat of the thing. And then verse 30 is the last piece. So you know what I mean? It's like practically an open-faced sandwich. Someone sliced that piece of bread really thin. But it is, it is a sandwich still. Nonetheless, we, we have a story that's interrupted by a point and then concluded after the point is made. Um, so we're going we're gonna to dive into this. Um, I'll just be straight up with you. This is going to be disorganized. Sorry. Um, I do have some things that I want to get to and share with you from this passage that I'm very excited to share with you. But we are going to walk through a section at a time, kind of talk through what's happening, and then I'm going to share some things that I see the Lord uh, telling us about this. So we're going to start, and we're just going to, differently than we normally do, I'm going to read a, read a section at a time, talk through that, uh, and then move forward. Usually I read the whole passage, I know, but we're going to do this one piece at a time. So first of all, Mark 6, 1 to 6, says this. 
he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So uh, you, you might remember we've, we've come back across the sea uh, to the other side of Ga- the Sea of Galilee. Now we're kind of moving west from Galilee toward Nazareth, which is like, uh, a, like a, a journey out of the area of the, of the Sea of Galilee, just to the west. And so back to his hometown of Nazareth. And when he gets there, we find him talking through this situation. He comes there, he's teaching just like he normally does. He goes to the synagogue of the city, um, and he's sharing the message that he is sharing with the world. Now, that message is something called the good news, and the good news is made up of three parts, and those three parts are, Hattie has answered every time, so I need a, I need a different answerer. You have. You definitely have. Claire, what's the first thing? That's the Trinity. Nailed it. That is the Trinity. What, is, what are the three components of the good news? Zipporah, had, you had your hand up, right? Zipporah? Yeah? What's the first one? No, no. Someone's got this. Someone's got the first one. What's the first piece of the good news? Lisa's got it. The time has been fulfilled. Okay, what's the second piece of the good news? Hattie? The kingdom of God is here. All right, what's the third part of the good news? Hattie's already answered, so someone else has to step up. Repent and believe, says Zachary. Good job, Zachary. Thank you, sir. Um, so the outset of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is sharing with his, you know, the recipients of his letter. He's saying, this is the good news. Jesus went about preaching. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. So whenever you hear Jesus go into a synagogue and he's teaching, you always may have, have that question because it doesn't tell you what he says, right? It doesn't ever tell you. It just says he goes to teach in the synagogue. Your question is, what is he saying? This is what he's saying. He's talking about the Old Testament and how it has come fulfilled in him. He's talking about the presence of the kingdom of God that is present with him. And he usually talks about that in parables, saying, like, this is what the kingdom of God is like, right? Um, and then he's calling them to something. Is he calling them to, uh, like, assent to their good deeds and say how great they are and, you know, be as holy as you can? No. He's saying, repent. You're a sinner. And believe in what? In Jesus, the one who will save, the God who will save you. None of the Old Testament testifies to the Old Testament people saving themselves. Every story we went through, you guys know, we've been through the casket, right? Creation, Abraham, Sinai, Kings, Exodus, Temple. We've been through the Old Testament. We have seen at every turn that God is the Savior. Every time. Did, did the people save themselves from Egypt? No. Did they cross the river Jordan by themselves? No. Did they tear down the walls of Jericho? No. God is the Savior. 
And so the message of the time fulfilled is that in Jesus, we repent and believe. We recognize that God is holy, and we cannot save ourselves. We can only be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is the message he's sharing in the synagogue. He's teaching these things. And so he gets back to his hometown. You could imagine, like, if this was, you know, a new teaching. Say, say you left your hometown and came back and wanted to tell somebody something new that you learned. And you happen to have, like, brothers and sisters there, you know? And you happen to be, like, the youngest of the brothers and sisters. And you're like, hey, I'm going to tell you guys what I learned, and you guys should listen to me. How's that going to go over? Not so well. I'm the youngest of four. I know that, like, if I came and tried to assert that in my household, anyway, uh, you know how it would go. It wouldn't go well. All right, baby brother, whatever, dude. Um, It wouldn't go well. So this is what Jesus is getting when he goes back to Nazareth. He's going back to share in his hometown. And they're going, we know you. You, you grew up under Joseph and Mary, like your, your dad is a carpenter, you became a carpenter, your brothers are here, you're, you're nothing special. You're just a Nazarite. That's all you are. And they start questioning and saying, at first they're like, where does he get this wisdom? Where does he do these mighty works? And then it quickly turns cynical, is he not the carpenter? Is he not the son of Mary? Is he not the brother of James and Joseph and Judas? Is it, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus, recognizing this, says uh, an old phrase, which is this, a prophet is without honor except in his hometown, is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And a powerful word from this is that we've seen him go about all the countryside of Galilee doing these mar- marvelous works. People are reaching out and touching his garment and being healed and you know, the, the, the uh, legion is coming down and bowing before the Son of God and asking to be redeemed, and those demons are cast out. Like, all these powerful works are happening, but here in Nazareth, he could do no mighty work, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus, the author of heaven and earth, the creator, marvels because of their unbelief. He's amazed that they do not believe and what is happening, and he goes about teaching in the villages. It takes a quick pivot in, uh, in the movement of uh, this narrative to him sending out his disciples. So you can imagine Jesus like, okay, you don't believe that like these are true works? You don't believe in what I'm saying? Then watch this. I'm going to take my power, and I'm going to give it to 12 other people. And it's not, hey, it's not me. These 12 people are going to do the exact same works that I do. And they go forth, it says, and we'll go forward to verse 7 to 13. It says this, And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing of their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, then they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus says, okay, this region is not going to believe in me. They're going to look at me and, and, and take offense at me because of my hometown. That's fine. I've been training up these 12 disciples. I'm just going to send them out. And they're going to do the same thing. They're going to do it in my name, but they're going to do the exact same thing. Look at that. They're they are sharing the message. Repent. Right? 
They're sharing the same good news that Jesus was sharing in the synagogue. That's what they're sharing. They're saying the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. So they're declaring the same message of Jesus, and they're doing it with the same power of Jesus. They're casting out demons, healing the sick, and all this is happening by these, by these disciples of his, the twelve. You go out two by two. Jesus says, don't take anything. Don't, just, just take uh, just a staff. That's all you can take to protect yourself against wild animals or whatever, I guess. Uh, no bread, no bag, no money. So no provision. Just show up to whatever city is next. And they should give you hospitality and take care of you as you proclaim the message and do these works that you're called to do. So he sends them out two by two to do this. It's kind of a, um, a judgment against his hometown, right? And, and a marvelous thing to show us what, about what he is pointing forward to in us, right? You carry the presence of God with you. He's called you to walk in God's provision. Okay? He's called you to walk in the same message that he has. And he demonstrates that right here in Mark. He's saying, listen, you guys aren't going to believe that I can do this? Then I'm going to send these guys out in my name, and they're going to do it also. And then what will you say? These guys aren't from Nazareth. You have no offense against them, but the same works I do, they are now doing. Watch this kingdom of God as it grows powerfully. So we see this uh, outset of the passage, this first big chunk of bread, is that uh, these powerful works and miracles are being done, and the people of the region of Galilee are being called to repentance and belief in Jesus. The gospel message is moving forward. Um, Mark then takes a pause. He puts in the, the meat of this sandwich. And the meat of the sandwich is in very stark contrast to the narrative, which is a narrative of mighty works being done and the gospel message going out. The meat of it is the death of John the Baptist. So verse 14, all these things are happening. The disciples are going forward and they're sharing the gospel. All these mighty works are being done. They're calling people to repentance Demons are cast out. People are being healed. All this is happening, and it says, verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So catch that. Jesus stopped doing work for a minute, sent his disciples out, and his name continues to grow such that Herod is now hearing of what is going on and saying, John the Baptist must have been raised from the dead. <laughs> what? Like, that should tell you a lot about, about what is happening with Jesus and his disciples, but also about how highly regarded John the Baptist was when he was alive, right? Herod's like, this crazy stuff is happening by the disciples' hands. Well, John the Baptist must have raised from the dead. That's how big of a figure John the Baptist actually was. Going on to verse 15, it says, Others said that Jesus was Elijah, and others said he was a prophet like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod's looking at what is happening with Jesus and the ministry of the disciples and going, John the Baptist has been raised to the dead. I beheaded this guy, but his powers are still at work, and people are being healed, and this manifestation is growing. He's scared, basically, because he's the one that beheaded him, right? Um, and then in verses 17 to 29, we go through a full recollection from John about how John the Baptist was imprisoned, 
um, and how he came, uh, came to die. I'm going to go through a portion of that and leave a portion of it for you to uh, read on your own at your, uh, at your discretion. Um, verses 17 to 20, it says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And John had been saying to Herod, John the Baptist that is, had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, that is Herod's brother's wife, right, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod was confounded by John the Baptist. He was going, I don't want to kill this guy. I know he's from God, but my spouse or my mistress doesn't like him, so I'm just going to imprison him and just keep him under control as much as he can. Soon after that, uh, there was a party that was had, and, um, and so I'm going to run through this real quick, but um, there was a party that was had, and, and effectively, the result of this party is that someone called for John the Baptist's head. And so they sent an executioner and actually killed John the Baptist and brought him before him. And so Herod is put in a corner where he has to, in fact, take John the Baptist's life. And so he's looking at what is going on and saying, all these mirac miracles that are happening all these people that are coming forward powerfully, this is because I beheaded John the Baptist and he is raised back from the dead. And that's why all these powers are happening. Um, so then the, the whole passage concludes with verse 30, returning back to the narrative. Again, this sliver piece of bread, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Verse 30. So we've got this story of um, Jesus' work kind of being stopped because of the lack of the faith of the people in Nazareth. His power going forward in the disciples that he commissions to go forward two by two. Um, we have this story put in the middle of this of John the Baptist uh, who, was, uh, who was executed for uh, for basically speaking out about the morality of the king, uh, and then return of the apostles going, hey, Jesus, look at all these amazing things that we have done. So it seems like, how do, we, how do you piece this sandwich together, right? Like you've got this narrative story of the disciples doing the works of the Lord, and then this story of John the Baptist uh, and his persecution and ultimate execution. And so I've been, you know, reflecting on this passage and praying through this this week, and uh, there are some things that um, I think we should take away from this. And first is this, just to step back and remind you, this is a book that Mark is writing. John Mark is writing this, this letter, really, uh, to the people in Rome around the time that they're being persecuted by Nero. Okay? So the church in Rome that has grown powerfully is now enduring persecution. And so throughout this gospel... The goal that Mark has with the people in Rome is to declare the good news of Jesus. That there is victory from the battlefield, that the, the, the fight against sin and death is over, and now we can walk in a new richness of life in Christ Jesus because of his sacrifice for us on the cross. 
So he's preaching to them again. He's encouraging them in the gospel message. And I, so I think it's fitting that he actually shares this, this sandwich with us because he's saying two things can happen at the very same time. Mark's saying to the Roman believers that they are, that are being persecuted for their faith. He's saying to them, miraculous works and persecution on account of our faith in Jesus, one, they should be expected, right? They should be expected. The expectation of the disciples of Christ is that God would miraculously provide for them in the kingdom of God, okay? Whatever that looks like, at whatever God wants that to look like at whatever time we're in, right? God is going to miraculously provide for the body of Christ. Second, the message of the body of Christ is an offense to the world. It's an offense. It is an offense to say there is one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. Okay? It flies in the face of our culture that says there's many roads to this, and there's not even a hell or heaven. Like Those things don't even exist. It flies in the face of all of that to say, no, actually, what I've come to realize is that I'm a sinner, and there's no way that I can save myself And the only hope I have is to trust in the Son of God who came to earth and gave his life that I might have life in him and be restored to God the Father. That message runs as an offensive message to our culture. And so Mark is saying to them, you should not be surprised that you come up against persecution when you are sharing this message. I mean, you guys know this. You struggle with this even in your families, in your friends. You say, how could God let this person that I love die without knowing him? We struggle with the reality of heaven and hell. We do. But the message we declare with great hope is that anybody who places their faith in Jesus can turn and have a perfect relationship with their Father in heaven, foregoing all the sin of their past and being counted righteous in what Christ has done, not in what we have done, and be reunited with our God and Father in heaven. Okay, so Mark is sharing this with the people in Rome and saying, I know you've seen miraculous works. I know you've seen powerful things of God happen in your midst. But I got to tell you, you should also expect that this persecution would come. It happened to the forerunner of Jesus, right? You could imagine being a believer in Rome and saying, wow, like, what is God doing? People are being healed and the, and the church is growing. And in spite of the fact that Rome is kind of huge, we see that you are moving and doing stuff here. And so they've seen the powerful work of God. And now Nero is coming to persecute. And you're going, geez, this doesn't feel very powerful anymore because like, our friends are being killed for their faith in Jesus. And so you would rightfully have questions at that point, right? You'd be going, uh, wait, so because of what we're saying, we are dying? Do I still believe? And so Mark's message in this sandwich is to say, yes, miraculous provision of God is happening, but it also happens not mutually exclusive to persecution. These things go hand in hand. So it's very challenging to our hearts, right? To say, okay, God, blessed be your name. You give and you take away. In good seasons and in bad seasons, I will praise you. I will bless your name. Regardless of if Nero is at my door, I will bless your name. Regardless of if I've brought in a great bounty and I'm, and I'm tempted to say that that was on my strength 
know I will bless your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we have some questions that I think we also need to raise to ourselves as we reflect on this message, and you might pick up some of these points from uh, walking through this. The first is this, just from the first section of, of text, back, just rewind to Nazareth, okay, and ask yourself this question. It's a hard question, and it's uh, not without, like, complication, okay, uh, for sure. But this is the question. Is Jesus marveling at our lack of faith? That hurts, right? Is Jesus marveling at our lack of faith? I mean, I have to ask that question when I look at this verse. Jesus showed up to his own, and he was amazed that they did not believe in him and what he could do. He couldn't do anything powerful there because they didn't believe. I'm not up here trying to say in any way, shape, or form, say, do not mishear me, uh, that, uh, that uh, all your problems can be solved by an increase of faith. Because that's not what I'm saying, okay? But I am saying we have to be challenged by this in our own walk with the Lord. If you're going to your time of prayer with the Lord and looking at your week and going, God, how is this going to happen? You know what I'll do? I'll do this, this, and this. Instead of going, God, I need you to show up. If you don't show up, this is going to fail. It cannot count on me because it has to count on you. If you're not in that place of saying, God, this has got to be you, then you've got to ask yourself the question, are you relying on your strength or are you relying on your Lord? Is Jesus marveling at our lack of faith? So easy it is for us to stack up our plans and our strategies, and our talents, and go, look at this, I can do these things, I'm so capable, and God says, I gave it to you, I am the giver, do you not see this? Is Jesus marveling at our lack of faith? Second, from the second kind of section there, are we trusting Jesus with the mission? Are we trusting Jesus with a mission? Again, same kind of a question. Is our trust in ourselves or is it in the Lord? When the Lord sent out his disciples, how did he send them out? With nothing. This time, when he sends them out, he sends them out with no provision. Don't take any food. Just take, you know, your shirt that's on your back, a staff to, you know, fight away the lions or whatever is out there, and, and hopefully you make it to the next town, right? That's all you've got. So as you're walking through the wilderness, you just hope this stick works, you know? Hope I'm good with the staff, right? The point is, what are they to trust in? Not in their provisions that they brought, not in their great studies, not in their great effort or their money, but in the Lord's provision for the mission. He said, you guys go out. And you know what? The questions that you have right now, they'll be answered when you get there. Reminds me of Abraham when Abraham was called, go to a place that I'll show you. Thanks. That's good. How many miles away is this place? Oh, hundreds of miles away of walking with all my family. Okay, cool. That's great. Are we trusting Jesus with the mission? Uh, a commentator that I read on this said this of this very uh, question. He said, true service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. Uh, this is, I mean, I don't know about you, but 
Uh, I've definitely been some places where there were material shortfalls and unanswered questions. Anybody else with me? Anyone else? Been, yeah? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you, you two understand what we're saying. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, go forth without anything in your knapsack, okay? Go forth, and trust me, when you get there, it's all provided for. Despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions, we go forward in dependence on Jesus. Another question from this text that I think we have to ask is, will we hold ourselves to the standard of the scripture? Will we be like John the Baptist, who really not even knowing how this thing was going to shake out? You might remember there's a story of John the Baptist where he sends his disciples out to Jesus and says, are you the one or are we to wait for another? Because, like, I'm in jail, like, I'm like, you're not exactly gathering an army around you. I thought you were going to be the Messiah. So like, what's happening? And Jesus sends back and says, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk. The kingdom of God is here. So John the Baptist is there struggling with this, and he is holding himself to the standard of scripture. Okay. He wasn't willing to even say, okay, uh, I'm going to call out King Herod because King Herod is operating in an immoral manner. He says, the word says this. The Bible says this is how things are supposed to work. This is the revelation of God and how morality is supposed to be. He's just looking at the Ten Commandments, right? He's just looking at the Old Testament going, this is how we're supposed to interact with each other. And so the challenge to us is, are we living that way such that we would, we would be bold enough to say that's wrong and that is right? You know where that comes from is trusting in the message of Christ. Are we repenting before a holy God? That was Jesus' message. That's the good news. It's a recognition that there is a holy God in heaven. And all I can do when I see the perfection of God in heaven is repent. Is to recognize that I do not meet that standard. I am not even close to it. And repent. Are we repenting before a holy God? And are we believing in Jesus as the only way to the Father? It can be easy, easy to just compromise in the gospel and say, yeah, I'm sure God like works it out for those who don't trust in Jesus. Like, that's not what it says. I would love to be able to believe that, but it's not what it says. Paul actually puts it this way. If the resurrection is not true, then we ought to be pitied before all men. It, because here I am as someone who's been called to at least bivocational ministry and, and many others who are called to some sort of vo vocational preaching of this good news, right? And Paul is saying of all those people who are called to go forth and proclaim the message, and, and you guys as well, as you proclaim the message of Jesus, Paul says you might as well be pitied above all men if Jesus isn't raised from the dead because you're wasting your time if he hadn't been raised. That's what he says. It's as black and white as that. If this didn't happen then we've wasted our whole lives. Thanks be to God that Jesus is raised from the dead, that death and sin have been defeated and we stand righteous before God.
it's a challenging text to um, to reflect on, and it's you know you can you can just see the disciples and the excitement of the apostles are like, oh my gosh, we went out and we did these things. Look at all these things that we did. And Mark is saying, yeah, contrast that, you know, like we've got brothers and sisters in China that are dying for their faith today, right? This is the beauty of the kingdom of God. This is all happening all at once. And God sees, what does he see? He sees our heart in this, okay? You, you sing this song, Blessed Be Your Name. You give and take away. Why does God give and why does he take away? To just show his power to us and show us that he's bigger than us? No, we know that already. He sees what's here. He knows our heart. He knows what's going to push us to the point of decision. Do I still trust in Jesus today or am I trusting in something else? Right? Reflect on uh, the woman who came and touched the garment of Jesus the lowliest position possible in that society. She just sneaks forward because she'd been defiled for 12 years and touches the garment, right? And the highest of society, the head of the synagogue, came to Jesus and said, my daughter is sick, please come save her, right? These two people from totally different economic standpoints come to Jesus, and the provision is exactly the same. Does this person trust in me or just want me to do a work? And both were true. The one of the head of the synagogue trusted in Jesus and wanted him to come desperately. He knew he's the only way was for Jesus to come. And the woman, same thing. The only way was for Jesus to come. So regardless of whether you're walking in blessing or walking in some difficulty or walking in blessing and still having difficulty or whatever the, whatever the uh, mark is, Jesus cares about our heart the reason he holds back is to press us to trust him. The reason he gives is to press us to praise him. He cares about our heart. So I challenge you this morning to ask yourself that question, is Jesus marveling at your lack of faith this week? Ask yourself that this week. Say, God... Is my faith in you or is my faith in me? Second, ask yourself, am I trusting Jesus with what he's called me to do? Or am I trusting myself? Finally, am I walking in the standard of scripture or am I walking in the standard of culture? Jesus is moving powerfully through the church. He was moving powerfully through the church in Rome, and Mark is just encouraging them, listen, I know you're seeing persecution, but you should have expected it. The same thing happened to the forerunner of Christ. And guess what? You'll continue to see the provision of God. Just as he gave it out to the disciples back then, he's giving it out now. So let's trust in the Lord this week with whatever you're facing, whatever you're up against, whatever circumstances before you, Come to the Lord and say, Lord, this isn't going to work unless you do it, because I can't. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. God, we need you every hour. We need you. 
We can't stand on our strength. We can't stand on our efforts, God. They fall short of a holy God. Lord, we trust you, and we trust you alone. God, we repent as a people. We recognize that this week, as followers of Jesus, we have done poorly. We've been angry. We've had, uh, we've walked in temptation. We've trusted in our efforts instead of yours. We've been greedy. Lord, we've been sinners this week. And we repent. But we, we desperately need you today. The parents in the room, we, we know we need you, Lord, because we love our children. And we want them. The, the one thing we want in life in spite of our imperfection and our, our constant inability to parent well. We want them to see you lifted up, to trust in you with their lives, to follow you every day. God, our hearts cry for it, and they'll cry to the day of our death. So God, we ask you have mercy on us. Would help us be better. We repent, God. And we believe. We don't believe just to cover up what we're, uh, just to cover up our sin and, and make light of it. We believe because it's the only hope we've got. We believe that your death on the cross has paid for all our sin. And we are made righteous in you, Lord Jesus. We believe this. Whether blessing or taking comes, we believe this. God, we know that the kingdom of God can go before us and we don't want to walk in our little kingdoms. We want to walk in your kingdom. It is here. You have poured it out by your spirit. You are here in us. We receive that, God. We don't want to be marveled at by the God in heaven for our lack of faith. We're going to look at what you've done in our lives and praise you for it and say, i got no other hope but God as Savior. He's the only one that could have brought me this far. And so I trust him for what's ahead because I've seen what he's done. Lord, we thank you for your marvelous provision. We thank you for your strength in opposition as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.